Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. The most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector. Dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders, also a successful author. His books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we've got a very important topic uh, to uh, cover today in our page two, uh, and that is this notion of predictable, consistent income growth for your nonprofit organization. There isn't a single board of directors out there that isn't hoping that uh, every fundraiser is going to find that secret, and we have Ellen Bristol here with us today, um, who's going to bring 20-plus years of experience in corporate sales and 18 years in fund development consultation uh, to the topic today to help all of us learn what are those tricks of the trade and tools that you can bring to that topic? As always, here on the Nonprofit Coach, um, you can uh, call in to 347-324-3080 and ask questions of our Page 2 expert. You can also join us over in the chat room. And you can ask questions there, or you can email me your questions today at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with Page 1 News. Heading up over here on page one news is George Hamilton. George Hamilton is the marketing and membership manager at CFRE, and every month he comes and joins us and provides us with the latest information uh, for CFRE International with the CFRE Minute. Welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, George Hamilton. Oh, thanks very much, Ted. It's great to be here. Hey, George, tell us what's uh, the latest and greatest over at CFRE. Well, the, the latest and greatest is that we're we're very excited to be heading into our next round of strategic planning for the organization. Um, we just at the end of 2015 closed out a three-year strategic plan um, aimed at at positioning the CFRE credential as as the the credential as a worldwide standard for certification for fundraising professionals. Um, and so we've had a lot we've had a lot of growth in the credential. Um, some really you know startling when you look at them. Um, Accomplishments in the last three years, so we're very excited to start in, start on our uh, our next strategic plan. Um, we're hosting a retreat for our board and staff, and also um, invited leaders in philanthropy and fundraising from around the globe. It'll be happening later this month. But I, just uh, just so that your listeners had an appreciation of where the CFRE has come in the last three years, I just wanted to go over a few things um, that have been accomplished under under our previous strategic plan. Um, in 2012. 
there are actually five different country-specific exam types for the CFRE exam um, based on, on practicing in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the United States. Now we have one single global exam that is offered worldwide. In terms of its availability, in 2012, the CFRE exam was offered at a limited number of testing centers in North America, and paper exams were proctored once or twice a year at sites in Australia, New Zealand, and in the United Kingdom. As of the end of 2015, the CFRE exam is now offered on a worldwide network of over 5,000 testing centers with multiple locations in every country. Um, then in terms of growth for the credential itself, in, um, since 2012, the initial application rate per year has gone up by 34 percent, 590 initial applications in 2012 and almost 800 in 2015. And also the, the rate of, of credential fundraisers retaining their credential um, has risen from 70 percent to 80 percent per year um, in that time period. That's really period. So incredible we've had a lot um, of accomplishment in, in yeah. such a short period of time. What do you yep. attribute this uh, the growth and, and and I think you know the growth is always impressive, but I think the retention from my perspective is an even bigger number uh, because that's saying you know I worked hard to get it, but I'm definitely going to keep it. Yeah, I mean I th I think it it has a lot to do with the strategic focus that the organization has placed. Um, on growing the credential and the understanding of the credential throughout the philanthropic sector over the last three years, and, and our planning, our plans to continue that. Um, I think that, that folks are, are seeing a lot more reward um, in terms of the recognition they receive in their jobs and from their employers, um, and we and we look to uh, continue to grow that over the next the next three years under this new strategic plan we're developing. That's terrific. To what extent do you uh, attribute the both the retention and, and the growth to the accessibility of the exam? Was that really uh, the impediment in the in the past that that maybe wasn't focused on enough? I, I think it was it was a big deal. Um, maybe not so much in the United States, um, but in in places like Canada, um, where you know until 2015 there were really only about 75 different testing centers where you could take the exam. And when you're talking about a mass the size of Canada, that that really is an impediment because it it requires somebody to plan a, a you know multi-day trip sometimes to take the exam. Um, same thing with uh, you know Australia. There were there was fewer than ten locations in all of Australia where you could take the exam. So I, I think that that the partnership with Pearson View and then the massive increase in the availability of the exam sites to people um, to be able to conveniently schedule the exam and not have it really disrupt their lives um, in terms of just getting to the exam and completing the, that process has been has been a right. big big influence. Right. So you said that you have this uh, big powwow with uh, all these uh, leaders and uh, groups that are coming together to to talk about the the future. Um, any thoughts mm -hmm. on on where that discussion might lead? Um, I think it's really about you know continuing and building on the accomplishments of the past three years. Um, the main focus areas are, are still going to be in positioning it, it as the global standard, um, with with secondary focus on on how do we continue to grow and build on our relationships with our participating organizations um, to enhance the the reputation and understanding of the credential in the field. And in the various ways that that might be accomplished. Exactly. And and, right. and the various audiences to to which we can we can um, address messaging. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. So where where is the the next area of focus for uh, for growth? Is it is it growth within the countries that you already have a presence, or is philanthropy uh, growing significantly to warrant uh, a standard of uh, certification in some some new countries? Um, I think we, we are, in terms of applications that are coming in, we are seeing an increase in applications from from countries um, where really CFRE has not had a marketing presence in the past, um, and we, we're going to look on look at strategies to build on that. Um, particularly, I think uh, in Asia as well as um, the EU uh, sector, especially with all the things that have been going on with fundraising, particularly in the UK. I think there's a real opportunity to position the the CFRE credential as a as a real way of rebuilding public trust in 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 philanthropy in fundraising, um, 
in that area where where it's really sort of taken a beating over the last 12 to 15 months. Right, right. So um, in terms of um, looking forward for CFRE, the, the vision seems very, very bright. Um, are there further changes to the the exam itself, or uh, I think you had shared with us that you had gone through some some reworking of the exam? Is that likely to stay as is for the the next year? Yes, it is. Um, the we we conduct a a job analysis um, study every five years, and on and from that the findings of that study, we we update the exam's test content outline. Um, so we just just updated the exam test content outline effective January 1, 2016. Um, so the, right. the exam's content outline will remain the same um, so very for, relevant. for the coming couple of years at least. So really a, a great time for my listeners to really be considering the exam. It's up-to-date content, more opportunities for exam sites, making it much more convenient. Uh, so hopefully... Uh, we will continue to be a source for promotion of CFRE. As I've shared on this show many times, we believe that um, certification standing in a voluntary capacity uh, to be tested um, against uh, content and with your peers is an important um, uh, way to show your professionalism and your dedication uh, to the profession. Uh, some people, I think, suggest that CFRE should mean a uh, pay increase. Um, I certainly hope maybe that has that effect, but I think it's far more important to show that we take our profession seriously, that there are standards uh, for ethics and for practice, and that's what CFRE stands for. And uh, here on The Nonprofit Coach, we remain a very strong supporter. And George Hamilton, thank you for joining us and sharing this month's CFRE Minute. Thanks very much, and thank you for your support. We look forward to having you again next month. Now that uh, wraps up our page one, and so we're going to head right on over to page two. It is my pleasure to have the opportunity to welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Ellen Bristol, uh, who is the author of Fundraising the Smart Way. As I shared before, predictable, consistent income growth uh, is her topic, and she brings a great deal of experience uh, to our show here today, applying 20 years of corporate sales experience and 18 years in fund development consultation to the problem of inefficient fundraising. Uh, Ellen uh, turns her extensive sales experience towards the perspective of selling an organization to potential donors, increasing the donor pool, and lowering the cost of fundraising. So, uh, Ellen, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. Oh, thanks, Ted. It's such a pleasure to be here, but I have to make one minor change, one minor correction. Um, What's that? <clears throat> we've, we've been in business for 21 years, and so we're very happy okay. and proud to say our consulting practice is old enough to drink. Ah, great. Well, 20, 21 years, so so even even more uh, experience. <laughs> right. You know, this 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 book is so timely uh, for nonprofit organizations as the the sector is beginning to grow again. Um, we're beginning to see uh, you know an, an upshift. Uh, in philanthropy across the the, the sector uh, from the Great Recession, which hit the nonprofit sector uh, very harshly, as it as it hit a lot of families and corporations uh, very harshly, um, and I think you know part of when fundraising is down and where the mission remains solid and strong is you need to learn where to cut, and, and efficiency really matters. So I think coming out of the Great Recession, one of the the, the um, long-term effects is a desire to continue to be very effective and as we grow, to be even more efficient in that growth income. And I think that's what makes your book so uh, very topical right now. Um, and you've labeled it fundraising the smart way. So why don't we start off by uh, describing why that title and where does that bring us to this topic? Oh, sure. Well, I actually developed uh, and trademarked a methodology called Fundraising the Smart Way starting some years back. <clears throat> Excuse me, Ted. And uh, 
it now exists in two models, one for corporate Salesforce productivity and one for fundraising effectiveness in the nonprofit sector. And by the way, we've been a lot more successful in the nonprofit sector, largely because I'm in love with the sector. So that's where we're, we've been focusing all of our attention. Um, <clears throat> I, I called the methodology fundraising the smart way because we've all heard about smart objectives, strategic, uh, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely. Well, there was one thing I wanted to change. Strategic, measurable, donor action defined, realistic, and timely. And there's something very important here, which is that uh, a whole lot of what goes on in this methodology is deeply focused on the funder. Is this funder right for us and how do we know? Is this funder's gift or grant or whatever kind of support it is? Um, moving through the arc of cultivation in a reasonably efficient manner. <clears throat> Those are two of the core elements. So we've taken plain old fundraising, and uh, I guess we owe a debt to Penelope Burke and her donor-centered approach. And this is another very, very donor-centric approach that complements what, uh, what Ms. Burke has spoken about. <clears throat> well, as you probably know, uh, Penelope has uh, been um, a regular uh, on this show, and it, and is because of her approach and the focus uh, that she places on uh, the donor. Can you share with my listeners how the changes that you've made uh, to the acronym SMART uh, makes a difference to how you can succeed and create that predictable, consistent income growth as opposed to just money coming in? <coughs> yeah, for sure. Excuse me. <clears throat> The idea here is that there's not much left for experienced, well-trained fundraising professionals to learn about the skills of fundraising. And uh, the folks at CFRE, and my hat's always off to them and to George, um, the folks at CFRE are really experts in holding very high standards that show what it takes to really be a top-notch fundraising professional. But where we've fallen down on the ground, in my opinion, is that we don't manage the fundraising process with the same degree of sophistication, um, nor do we hold it to uh, appropriate uh, standards. So I took my... Uh, my education, training, and observation, and the whole thing about business process management. And when I looked at what we could do and what we have done for the past 70 years in improving productivity as a result of top-notch business process management, the question that came to my mind was, why don't we manage fundraising this way? And as I sort of tried to figure out why we weren't managing fundraising with that degree of, uh, you know, productivity management, let's call it, I realized, you know what, if you could be much more rigorous and much more disciplined about where you invest fundraising resources in cultivation, you know, who you're going to pay attention to, and go after, and how you um, look at the data that arises from the opportunity pipeline, well, then you've got a very, very uh, reliable, predictable business process. I hope I'm making myself clear here. I, I think I think you are, and, and a question that, that, that I have is, is you take us – in that path is what kind of revolution in fundraising do you think is necessary to to bring that about? Because I, I think 
most fundraisers who have been around for a little while, and I'm not talking about you know our, our most senior fundraisers, but those who have been around maybe you know enough time to think of the CFRA exam certainly right. have in their mind that they are strategic or that they are thoughtful in the step-by-step process. But I think when the day-to-day um, begins to hit your schedule, um, right. it, it becomes more opportunistic and or distress-oriented. Um, how does your approach sort of take the the seasoned fundraiser or the thoughtful fundraiser in a direction of not being so distracted to the distressful or the opportunistic. You know, that's a terrific example of what goes wrong. And in uh, one of the sort of axioms of organizational management or organizational development is that the urgent will drive out the important if you let it. Right. So this is a big piece of the revolution. Another piece that inspired me was the research. Um, I've been following the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, which is a joint venture between Association of Fundraising Professionals and the Urban Institute, for, for quite a few years. And they're showing us that in spite of tremendous gains since the Great Recession, you know, last year we were actually above the level of philanthropic giving for the first time since 2008, Um, we're losing out. We lose donors and we lose dollars through attrition. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but for every $100 raised, we're either flat or losing a couple of dollars. But even worse, is that for every 100 donors acquired, we're in negative numbers. We're losing between 102 and 107 uh, since 2011. So I'm also very interested, you know, I, I, guess, I guess I like gossip, um, which is kind of a funny way to put it. But I've all, all my years in business, which is over 40 now, I've been – listening to what's going on between the lines and what we used to refer to as the water cooler conversations, the same complaints, the same whining and moaning about what's wrong with the organization and why they, senior management, are not doing things right for us, the fundraising team. So we've done, um, we're we're going into our fifth year studying uh, fundraising effectiveness with our le- our own leaky bucket assessment of fundraising effectiveness. We've got about a thousand surveys in the sample, and it measures about nine basic business practices. What we're finding is that out of that whole mass of samples, um, somewhere between 75 and 77 percent of them their scores fall below the statistical midpoint. So this is kind of a stretch, but about kind of suggests that on the whole, the the fundraising effort gets about a C minus throughout the sector. And so so perhaps it's not as surprising that the C-suite folks um, are not, uh, enamored with the overall success of their fundraising team. Gee, you think? And they don't yeah. know how to fix the problem. You, you, you landed on something really important. One of the statements in our uh, leaky bucket assessment is what standard practices are used when fundraising results fall below desired level. And it was a multiple, you know, you could choose as many options as you wanted out of the list of options. About half of all respondents chose throw more special events. And we weren't able to record the moans and groans of all the fundraising teams out there who, you know, just went and pounded their collective foreheads against the wall because on the ground we know that beyond a certain level, you can't throw more fundraising events without losing money, wearing out your staff, 
turning off your volunteers and creating donor fatigue. But when the board says, oh, we're losing money, it's like this knee-jerk reaction. Another example of the urgent driving out the important, running around like a chicken without a head because we're not seeing good results. Right. I, I'm, I'm obviously dating myself, and honestly, I'm, I'm not old enough to necessarily remember the, the first shows, but in reruns, um, do you remember <laughs> seeing um, a, a show called Our Gang? The, the Our Gang I'm series. old enough to remember when they played them in reruns on TV. In, Okay. Well, yes, I, I, I I've seen I, I I've seen several of them, and I often think of that when boards of directors come to that conclusion, that in in the R gang, anytime they needed money, anytime there's a problem, let's throw on a show. We'll put on a show, yeah, and then you know course. people will buy money. And it and it always seemed like it's the the R gang uh, approach to success. And then you also get boards of directors that are on the other end who feel that they're terribly analytical. Um, and they look at all the data and they come up with a solution that, aha, we're only going to do planned giving. Because or, or that we're only is the most do, cost effective. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it, that's shiny object syndrome. Right. This month right. we're doing planned giving. Next month we're doing online giving. The month after that we're only doing donor right. retention. What, and whatever happens to... Um, uh, you know, whatever shiny new object comes along. The worst of it is when the boards of directors say, this fundraising stuff isn't working, so we're defunding the position. Right, right. Or we'll keep it only if it raises its own salary. This year. This year, right, this year. Right. So how and, how and, how do we because that that it's definitely from from what you're saying and and in your work it continues to be and it troubles me because we've we've been at this for a while as a profession. It continues right. to still be sort of us against them. C-suite wants the money so they hire a magician, uh, someone right. maybe with CFRE to come in and of course the spigot's supposed to be turned on and the money and, it, and it's an endless amount of money because we we can always spend whatever is raised. And right. and I I often when I'm lecturing I always tell people, you know, I have something very profound to tell you about your capacity to raise money. Uh and that yes. is I have absolutely no fear that you will raise too much money. Because your organization will spend whatever it is that you raise. And uh, there's a corollary to that. They will want more next year. So so clearly the need for money or the desire for money is not the best way to set goals. No, it's a terrible way way to set goals. And then from the fundraising perspective, so that's from the C-suite. You know, you're the magician. Go get the money and just, you know, and it all should be unrestricted money um, because we know right. best how to spend it. And then the, the on the fundraising side, coming at it from a professional saying, you know, this takes time. It's about relationships. People don't owe us this money, but they want to give because they want to fund a dream. Um, mm. So, So how do we bridge that gap? Because honestly – it seems that this is a conversation that we could have had five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and we've not done a very good job as a profession, if we look no. at it from, from our perspective, of bridging that gap to understanding how does fundraising actually work and how does that fit within a budget process? Because if you are setting your budget as your deficit, mm-hmm. you don't understand fundraising. Precisely. You've asked this question really in a very uh, helpful way to me, so I'll probably rip you off in the future and quote you. Um, Uh but, But here's the deal. What we've looked at in the past, and by the way, this problem isn't limited to fundraising. It We see a very similar configuration in corporate sales. Corporate sales is not perfect. But what, we, what we're looking at all the time in fundraising is tactics. Are we hiring the guy with the biggest Rolodex, you know, the biggest contact list? <coughs> Does he know the secret handshake or, or where the hidden door is behind which all the high net worth donors are hiding? Um, 
and what have you done for me lately? How come you didn't bring in more money today? I hired you yesterday. What's wrong with you? Um, right. Where what we where the issue isn't tactics based, skills based, or individual based. The issue is an organizational one, and only organizational solutions are going to really attack it. So let me give you a hint about what it takes to understand your true capacity for raising money. And as you say, let's not worry about raising too much money. We can figure that out later. The first thing we need to know is how little time there really is available for raising money. And I'm going to give you a little formula here. The IRS, in its infinite wisdom, assumes that the average employee works 2,000 hours a year. That accommodates for 50 weeks of, you know, 50 40-hour weeks. Ha-ha, we're only working eight hours a day. And um, we take two weeks vacation. So no weekends, no 11-hour days and two weeks vacation. So that gives us 2,000 hours a year. But stop and think about all the things you have to do with your time that have nothing to do with fundraising, like completing reports, doing analysis, um, preparing for board meetings, uh, sick days, travel, conferences, training, taking your CFRE exams, renewing your CFRE, um, need I go on. So there's a whole list of things that the average fundraising staff person has to do that chew up a lot of fundraising time. Now, if we, if we have, you know, in many small organizations, we have no one dedicated to fundraising. We have our ED who raises money, runs the, pro, you know, runs the programs, manages the volunteers, cleans the bathroom, and does all the social media marketing. Um, that person has even few hours left. So if we say, okay, we have so many hours available, what are those hours worth in risk? You know, if we, if we throw an hour at a completely unqualified uh, prospect, somebody with whom we have no relationship, we don't know whether they have the right capacity, we don't know whether they have the right uh, values and motivations, and we're just there because somebody said, call on Jim, he's my brother-in-law, or you know, we tripped over them because they're breathing, um, then we've just blown an hour, and. Uh, our calculations on this show that if you're trying to raise a million dollars and you're a full-time fundraiser, your, your hours probably carry a risk factor of about, about 1100 bucks. In other words, every time you're investing an hour in a prospect, you're risking the loss of about $1,100 that you could otherwise be bringing in right but, so, but but wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute i once had yeah. a board member tell me i know how to raise money i know how to bring in the big gifts you take people to lunch Mazel tov. is that solved isn't it isn't it, isn't it done it's solved <laughs> well um you know come on ellen you've you've you, been at this for for 40 years you could take isn't people that the to answer? lunch until no it's not the answer okay Especially these days when sometimes cultivating a donor means you're here in Staten Island, but your donor's out in Fargo, North Dakota. How much is it going to cost you to take that guy to lunch? Right. How many days is it going to take out of your schedule? How much is the airfare going to be? And we all know that people don't do that. Even if your donors are local, nobody has that time anymore. So, right. so these tips and tricks about buy them lunch, play golf with them and all that stuff, 
they don't work for me. I don't play golf. Right. I don't but, but say where, people. But where, do, where, where do board members get that idea? I mean, what, how is it that the the solution to fundraising is as simple as that? Is it the fundraiser that doesn't get it, or is it the board member, and why? Um, this is a big, big question. I think there's a big mystique in fundraising, um, and I want to address this first from the board's perspective. And believe me, I understand and appreciate the honor it is to serve on a board and the value that governance brings to every organization. But what we find oftentimes, with all due respect to board members who may be listening, is that oftentimes directors leave their business acumen at the door when they come to sit at the board table. Or they don't have experience in sales. They're not accustomed to thinking about how do I position myself. The other thing that doesn't work that board members tend to do is arm twisting. You've got to do me a favor for me. You know, Invest in this because if you do, I'll give you, my company will give your company more business or whatever it is. That sounds like it's a little shady, but you know what I'm talking about. You've got to do me a favor. Right, right, right. Well, right? I mean, business makes business, right? Right, but here's the deal. Business doesn't make business if the price is wrong, the mission is wrong, and the corporate values don't match. So we have to figure out how to align the value your nonprofit brings to the table. It's value added, not just who it serves. Um and what what motivates donors to give, which I call value sought. So value added, that's us, the nonprofit, plus value sought, that's the donor and the donor's motivations. When they match up, you have engagement. If they don't match up, you find it very difficult to get the gift or keep the gift for the future. So... To go back to your question, how do we get past this mystique? Board members come in with a lot of unrealistic notions. All I have to do because I'm a big shot is take somebody to lunch. If that's the truth, Ted, I'd like to know why I hear from hundreds of nonprofit professionals, maybe thousands, that the boards never that our board never gets involved in fundraising no matter how much we ask. So please take our take our prospects to lunch a little bit. See what you get out of it, Mr. Board. Right. Well, and 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 possibly to you. I mean, if it's real, um, yeah. a, a good development officer is going to use that as part of their tool set. But, it is but my point being a, a little tool. bit quip That's about right. that. It, it was was to point out that there's nothing simple about some, taking someone to lunch to get the big check unless a lot of work has been done before the lunch. You don't just take someone to lunch and say, how about I take a check home with me? Well, unless you want to be laughed out of the, out of the restaurant and left with the, you know, stuck with the check. Um, Right. And some of the thing, you said a magic word here, all the work that has to be done before you, you ask for the check. I think a lot of us, including fundraising professionals, we're not pure as a driven snow either, assume that the work that that has to go in before we ask for the check starts with the cultivation. It doesn't actually start with the cultivation. It starts a lot farther upstream. How much time is available and what's it worth? What is our value added, and what is it that makes our nonprofit worth funding in the first place? How do we know which, what motivates our best donors, and what messages do they need to hear from our agencies in order to persuade them that we're worth a second glance? You and I both know that 80 to 90% of all business transactions start with a Google search. So long before you and I have encountered a prospect, they're already out there shopping for what they want to do with their charitable giving. 
and and, and if you're if if you even have a phone call with them, they're doing their homework before you get on the call. Before you get on the call. Now, the nice thing about this is that if you are thoughtful, diligent, and sophisticated about your marketing, outreach, search engine optimization, website management, email marketing, and social media marketing, if you have all that stuff in place, which doesn't happen overnight, you don't have to cold call. They are already coming to you. They're using inbound marketing techniques. So if, a, if you send out a newsletter that's not electronic and that doesn't have link backs to your website that allow your, you to analyze what's going on and saying, oh, these guys like cats more than dogs, so let's send out our stuff about cat rescue and those guys like dogs better than cats. So let's engage them in the upcoming dog adoption picnic, yeah. right? Um, right? So by the time we encounter these folks, they're already engaged, and the process of moving them from online giving or annual appeal giving to major giving, be that major giving corporate sponsorship, grant making, or major giving, we're already deep into the relationship. Right. And, and Ellen, that's the point, right? I mean, the, the point is to identify those people who can be significant support to the organization. And you must right. have all of your tools in place. You've got to have a solid annual giving program. You've got to be solid online with good content because all of these things tee your organization up to be able to identify those people who can make a difference and will make a difference, that's how you move the needle. That's how you make it predictable. That's how you make it consistent. It, it's, that, that's really the crux of the matter right there, isn't it? That's the crux of the matter. The key right. thing. So, you, so you Alan, left hold that this thought. out. Let hold, me... hold, hold that thought. Oh, wait. Hold that thought. Yeah. Uh, because we're, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, because I, I, I knew this is what you were talking about. This is KYD, <laughs> Know Your Donor. This is, this right. is um, where the, the hard data comes in to the fundraising right. productivity. And you're going to tell us how, and you're going to tell us what every one of my listeners needs to know uh, about right. uh, how they can actually make this more predictable and consistent because you've got the answers. And we'll be right back after this very quick break. Great. Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing, it's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today. And just a quick program note, next week we have an excellent um, new author, a new book, um, The Social Movements for Good. 
published by Wiley, uh, and uh, the author is Derek Feldman. Uh, he's going to uh, tell us how companies and causes can create viral change. So don't miss that next week here on The Nonprofit Coach, 12 noon Eastern, next Tuesday. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Ellen Bristol. Now, Ellen, know your donor. Um, how does data make a difference? Bring it home for us because this can become more predictable and consistent if we plan for it. You got it. Um, everybody knows you want to focus your attention on those donors with the capacity to give big. But if we're if if knowing your donor only means knowing how much money they have in your po- in their pockets you're making a big mistake because you cannot engage people on the basis of their wealth and your need for income. You can only engage people if they're motivated by your mission, your cause, or your programs. There's no other way to do it, especially if you want to retain those donors. So the selection process has to quantify the the soft or qualitative criteria that you're looking for. It's easy to characterize or or establish standards for wealth profile giving history, amount of charitable giving to your organization's sector. You You can get most of that stuff through good prospect research. But the second piece is analyzing your best current supporters to figure out how they intersect, how their motivations for giving intersect with your value added. And there's chapters on this in my book and on the Wiley's Companion website, there's all the standard templates that we use. Um, And another thing we want to know about the donors is if they match our quantifiable criteria and they match our qualitative criteria, are there some gotchas or or no-nos? We call them danger signs, like the famous donor who's worth a fortune and loves us to death but is big talk, no action. Or their gifts come with such strings attached, they'll take you off mission. Um, there are a number of other things. So, so we actually create um, a, a way to score donors, to score our funders based on a standard benchmark that includes quantifiable, qualitative, and negative criteria criteria to avoid. And then it, it's built on a spreadsheet. It's what we call in math a weighted scoring matrix. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, a credit score. Um, you're going to rank your prospect or current donors A, B, C, or D. Uh, and the D, the D donors justify very little investment of fundraising time and effort. You can win their business, but don't spend a lot of money on it. Right. And A is they justify maximum effort, and maybe those are the guys that you link up with your board chair, your chief scientist, your CEO, your whatever. Um, So that's a piece of it. And that's one of the things where we start to get data-driven. Wouldn't it be great if you could look at your entire, what we used to call in, in the sales world, our book of business? Amongst all of our donors, how are they distributed according to this scorecard rank, A, B, C, or D? And guess what? If they give you 50 bucks a year through the annual, you know, through the annual appeal campaign, they're not A donors. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, so that's one of the things we quantify. Another thing that's really important and underappreciated, as far as I can judge, in the nonprofit sector is the use of effective management of the opportunity pipeline. 
I've actually been shocked. Having come out of 20 years of corporate sales, where the use of the pipeline was as common as, you know, bread and butter, a lot of, you know, about half the audiences I speak to have never heard of the opportunity pipeline. Right. So, well, I was going to ask you get, to describe that because there's so many organizations that don't have that, and you'd be shocked. Right. Well, um, let me let me explain it in a nutshell. The pipeline is this invaluable checklist of opportunities that you have opened that haven't yet come to a conclusion where they said no or they said yes. And um, the critical thing that makes good pipeline management so valuable in terms of predictability and consistency is that you need to have what we call opportunity stages in the world of CRM systems, that's what we call them, opportunity stages. We came up with a title for ours that we call donor moves. A lot of people have said, oh, you mean moves management, don't you? And the answer is I want to honor moves management because it's been a very valuable model, but it, doesn't, it hasn't evolved. Moves management gives you many options that describe the activities and behaviors you, the fundraising person, should take or could take with prospect A or recurring donor Q. So they're not consistent, and so you can't really do a lot of data analysis. We boiled our list of opportunity stages down to five that lead to the gift. There are also three after that that are stewardship moves. But the five move, the moves that we're talking about describe the donor's giving behavior. It's therefore much less complicated because we have fewer uh, data elements to keep track of. They happen in a uh, totally predictable sequence. Um, and they always happen in the same sequence. Uh, the, the first move is, did the donor tell us enough about themselves for us to assess their value to us? The second is, did the donor find out enough about us for them to decide they liked us? Did the donor indicate a willingness to be solicited for a gift? Did we provide, and then we provide the proposal, right? Did the donor sit down and negotiate or review that proposal and discuss the scope, the terms, the color of paper it was written on, blah, blah, blah. And the last donor move is, did the donor say yes? Between you and me, Ted, if you're going to lose this gift anyway, you want to lose it early. And most likely you're going to lose it because at move one or move two, you don't like them. Not, not out of affection, but they don't represent what you're looking for, and you don't represent what they're looking for, if you follow me. And, and, that's, and that's what fundraising is really all about, bringing people right. to great causes where they want to make a difference. It's not just that they have a big pocketbook. Well, absolutely. Their pocket, you are always competing with whether or not they want to give a nickel away in the first place. And in the second place, have they already committed 99.999% of their wealth to causes that you don't touch? Right. So, well, and, and what I, I always tell people is, is, is you know, when when you're you're in that collection mode, when you're 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 getting to know that donor, you're having those conversations, is to be able to assess through your conversation and your research, could they love you third best? And, and what I mean right. by that is, be, behind their house of worship and behind their alma mater, could it be you? Right. Precisely. Or do you come behind the Alzheimer's Foundation or No-Kill Animal right. Shelters or the Chamber right. of Commerce? Because so if you're not at least third piece. best, if, you, if, if they don't love you at least third best, you're not getting a large gift. You may get a gift. They may care about you because lots of donors care about lots of organizations, but they don't right. usually make large gifts to their top five or top ten. It's Which just not that common. Back, 
And, and that takes us back to the very first thing we talked about is the scarcity and costliness of fundraising time. If you're not right. third best, you're probably, you probably don't justify the investment of fundraising time and effort. Right. You can win it. You can still win money from less costly channels, such as direct appeal campaigns, online giving, special events, and the like. But it's really not justifiable to take a, a, a fifteen hundred dollar an hour development officer and have them chasing somebody who's good for five hundred bucks. Right. So let me. I see we're getting close to our ending point. There's one critical we thing are. I want to talk about uh, real quick, and that is when we talk about the opportunity stages, the last one is the donor just, you know, the donor gives us money. Tends to be what people focus on. That's the trailing indicator. It doesn't really show up until after all the work has been done. And if that's all you're focusing on, you don't have insight into the process, so you don't know what to fix. The first four of the donor moves are leading indicators. And we can, see, we can uncouple data about the anecdotes of fundraising, how are we doing with prospects A, B, C, D, E, and just combine how many donors have achieved this stage in this period of time at that dollar level carrying this rank against their scorecard. That's where we get the intelligence and analytics out of our system to produce opportunities for continuous improvements. And that's where the revolution lies. And for the average nonprofit, this is doable? Is that How do they focus on this? How do professionals really make this it's, happen? And as you predicted, it's, it's we have a couple doable. of minutes left. We, uh, we like to implement this. Uh, the implementation is almost always at least four and a half months long. We love to work with smaller nonprofits, so we have um, offered a way to do it on in a learning cohort where we bring together small groups of nonprofits, up to five. They can delegate <clears throat> up to three candidates or three or four candidates each. We deliver the whole thing virtually, web, web conferencing with live facilitation. And uh, the first few sessions, train the clients in the methodology and help them develop their scorecards, their pipeline metrics, and so on. And then the last chunk is we do hand-holding, coaching, and implementation support to make sure people can really uh, engage in it. For larger agencies, the quote-unquote cohort would be, you know, different affiliates participate together in a national organization, or we just have a big uh, development team and they fill up the room. So um, pricing and all that stuff is available from a quick call or a visit to our website <clears throat> which is bristolstrategygroup.com or you can call me at 305-935-6676. Ellen, I can't thank you enough for your time today. We have just about a minute left. What's the final thought that you have for those who are intrigued by this notion that you can build a predictable, consistent income growth for their organization? Stop worrying about fundraising tactics and start worrying about fundraising strategy. Who's that right so for important. you? That is so important. And if your board of directors can come to understand this, share with them the data that you have and why you are focusing on the prospects that you have, a full-service fundraising program is going to lead you to the large donors. And Ellen Bristol That's has just right. pointed out to us today how important fundraising the smart way is. So, Ellen, thank you so much for being my guest here today. Please come back often, and don't forget to join us next week here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thanks, Ted. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.